today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Let me pray as we get ready to launch into there. Father, thank you so much for your love and your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your tenderness, your compassion, your gentleness with us. What an awesome Father and God you are. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who you, Lord, gave yourself as a sacrifice for our sins. You laid down your life. Thank you so much for loving us that much and for giving us the ability by your Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, and and that we have the capacity to love you and to love our fellow man. We pray, Lord, that as we go forth into this new year, that you would cause us to be marked by our love for one another, that people will know that we're the people of Christ. Many would be drawn to you through us in the preaching of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I don't know if you're aware of it, but our intelligence community uh, puts out a document each year. It's called the Worldwide Threat Assessment. So you can imagine what might be involved in that document. Uh, It has evaluations of different countries like Russia and China, North Korea, Iraq. It looks at technology like cyber terrorism and different weapons. It looks at movements in the world and immigration, uh, warfare in different regions, politics. It looks at all kinds of things that might be a threat to our nation in the next year. I'm thankful that we have organizations like this. Our intelligence community is endeavoring to keep our country secure and safe. As citizens of the United States, we have this for our physical security. But what I want to talk to you about today for 2019 is your spiritual security. You are a citizen of heaven, and God has made a means by which you can assess the threats that are going to be to your faith. Sometimes we forget that as citizens of heaven that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We are engaging in spiritual warfare every single day of our lives. The New Testament, therefore, is filled with military metaphors. We have imagery of warfare. We're called soldiers, Philippians Chapter 2 and Philemon chapter 2 and and Timothy chapter 2. I don't know what it is about chapter 2, but in each one of these chapters, Paul calls people fellow soldiers. We have spiritual armor that we're to wear. We have swords and shields and we're uh, supposed to defend against and extinguish fiery arrows from our enemy. It's fine for us to say Happy New Year to one another. It's a great sentiment But this next year, just like this last year, is going to be filled with spiritual battles, struggles, hardship. We ought to better say, be alert, be on guard, be sober-minded, stand firm in your faith. When I was in the Air Force, before we went on any kind of a mission, we would always have an intelligence briefing, and they would tell us what threats we were going to face, and what the capacities of these different threats are. So that's what I want to do for you today. I want to give you, from the Word of God, an intelligence briefing to tell you what you're going to face in 2019, the threats to your faith, and how to defend against them, how to be ready for them. Your faith is going to be tested. James In chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. One of my favorite things to do is to go to the gym and work out. And when I work out, I don't try to make it lighter and lighter and lighter on me. That's the temptation. But I try to make it heavier and heavier so that my muscles are tested, broken down so they'll repair and grow. This is the way that your faith is. It's the testing of your faith that makes it stronger. It's the testing, the threats come against you, and they test the genuineness of your faith and see whether you're going to run to God 
and become stronger, produce fruit, and persevere, or whether you're going to run away from him and try to seek comfort or some type of security in something else. So look at Matthew chapter 13. In the parable of the soils, we'll see five threats that you're going to face in 2019. A lot of times when we look at this passage, we, we focus on the soils. But in verses 18 through 23, we're going to focus on the five threats to your faith. Look at uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 first. Follow along as I start in verse 1. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had arisen, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now skip down to the explanation that Jesus gives his disciples in uh, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Or, yeah. So, when we look at that parable, a lot of times when we look at this parable, we see the sower is the one who brings the gospel. The seed is the word of truth, the gospel we're to believe. And the soils represent the different hearts of individuals and how they respond to the truth. And a lot of focus often we place upon what faith is genuine. Which one of these is genuine and we, in our circles, generally teach, I think is right, that the, only the last soil that produces fruit and perseveres in faith is genuine. <clears throat> and when we are gathered today in a meeting like this, we probably have all four types of soil represented. We have those that are unbelievers, you don't believe what we believe, that we sing about, about the truth of God's Word. <clears throat> Perhaps you are somebody who has, is new to the faith, you know, you think that, uh, wow, I've embraced this truth, you know, get heaven, don't have to go to hell, that's good news. There's all this good wisdom in the scriptures. I'm enjoying study, uh, wonderful stories, a good way to live your life. <clears throat> I think that uh, it's, it's wonderful that there's people that gather around me and love me and I've been accepted into friendship and all of this. But then persecution comes and they say, whoa, I didn't sign on for this. And they flee. There's others that uh, profess faith, and they go along for quite a while. You know, they may even be, like the next parable talks about uh, separating, not, not separating the, uh, the wheat and the, uh, the tares. Yeah, tares. <clears throat> and so some people, they'll grow up in the church with other people that profess faith, and eventually, though, their faith is choked out. 
You know, you've probably seen that in this church. You have maybe leaders that have been pastors even, and then they uh, commit adultery, and you know, they walk away from the faith. <clears throat> well, what is it that we're to be concerned about? What are going to be the threats that are going to come against us and cause some to fall away from the faith or to be choked out and to, to leave the faith? What are the things that are going to test the genuineness of us, the ones who, by God's grace, will persevere? Well, we have five here that are threats to our faith. And Paul gives us what we're looking for in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He writes that he had excessive affliction nearly to the point of death and he tells us why. He says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's what you're going to be faced with. You're going to be faced with threats, tests of your faith. And what God wants to see is that you turn to him, that you hope in him, that you have faith in him, that you persevere in living in a relationship with him and producing fruit. So there are five threats to your faith. Number one, Satan. He is your adversary. He is your enemy. Matthew calls him the evil one in our text. Mark, in a parallel text, identifies him as Satan. And Luke calls him the devil. In the parable, Satan takes away the word from the one who does not understand it or receive it. That's what he wants to do today. He, wants, he doesn't want anyone who doesn't know Christ to, to hear it even, to understand it, or to receive it, or to believe it. And so you know that there is going to be interference that's supernatural as we go out from here this day and throughout the next year and try to share the gospel with people. Satan's called the God of this age who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that he ensnares people and holds them captive. So we need to realize that we have this very real threat all the time. I think we forget a lot of times that there is a spiritual battle going on with principalities and powers of this present darkness. That we have Satan as someone, I think, titled a book. He's alive and well on planet Earth. But Satan is not content with unbelievers. He wants to attack those who profess faith. Our adversary, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's written to believers. According to the New Testament, we're to, to wage the good warfare against him. We're, uh, 1 Peter 5, 9, to resist the devil and make him flee. So we need to be waging warfare against him, resisting him. We need to refuse to give him an opportunity. Ephesians 4, 27, we're to stand against his schemes. So we need to know what his schemes are. We need to assess this threat. What is Satan going to do? How is he going to try to devour us? We need to follow Paul's example in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We need to know his schemes. So what are his schemes? Well, first of all, it's important to know that Satan is going to lie to you. He's the father of lies. Jesus said in John 8, that Satan has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. He lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. He deceived Eve. He's going to offer you alternatives to the truth. 
One way that he does this is through false teachers. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, Paul says that some people are posing as apostles who are not. And he explains this. He says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, these demons are going to influence false teachers. And they're going to have doctrine of demons, as Paul calls them in 1 Timothy 4. They're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to enter into the the flock, and they're not going to spare the flock. They may even do, as is prophesied, some false signs and wonders, especially in the end times. But false teaching is a very real threat to you. When I went off to college, it was amazing because there were all of a sudden all of these Christian groups, and I was hungry for fellowship. It didn't take me long to realize that a lot of them were not good. (laughs) And every single religious organization has some kind of an effort, an assault, if you will, to a college campus. It was there that I was introduced to cults and false religions. And I even found myself intrigued because there was a guy who was a friend of mine, and he and I were part of Campus Crusade, and then we went into Navigators, And uh, then he started getting some teaching from this other guy that followed this prophet named William Branham. And so, all of a sudden, what he said sounded good to me. And so, I went off and I got involved with that group for about a week. Then I had another brother who had been part of our group, and he came to me and he was just in tears. And he said, Brian, if this is all true, then what we've believed has been wrong, and You know, I urge you to reconsider. And so I was thankful for that, brother, because I got into the Word and I said, you know what, this is wrong. But any one of us can be influenced because a lot of these things will sound enticing. They'll come along with a a verse. You know, this one prophet, he said, uh, you know, there was the promise, the prophecy in the Old Testament that John the Baptist fulfills that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children the hearts of the children of the fathers. And in the Gospels, it only quotes the first half of that in relationship to John the Baptist, that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This guy came along and says, I'm the prophet who will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. I'm the second half of the fulfillment of that passage. So you can see how there's just this twisting. There's these these ideas that are going to come forth. Satan wants to ruin your faith by getting you to... Follow into some false teaching. Some people show that their faith isn't genuine because they actually go into some cult like like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. They buy into some false religion. But others, by God's grace, will be delivered out of them. They'll see the truth. Satan's also going to, to lie to you by telling you that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't care for you because why would he allow certain things to happen to you and he's going to cause some things to happen to you we see from scripture it seems that he is allowed by god in some amazing way in which we don't understand job never understood why god allowed satan he didn't even know satan was doing these things but he didn't he didn't know why god allowed these things to happen to him but but satan was able to bring catastrophes into his life he was able to Take away all of his possessions, all of his servants, all of his children, and his health. And so, we should not be surprised that Satan would want to, and would be able to, to some degree, bring into your life in 2019 some type of illness. Jesus attributed illness often to Satan when he healed people. The thorn in the flesh that Paul experienced was was said to be a messenger from Satan that inflicted and tormented him. So there may be catastrophes that he wants to cause. You may face hurricanes. You may face disease and illness. And Satan ultimately wants to kill you. 
He's a murderer. Jesus said to those who were planning to kill him, he said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. Satan hates God. He hates God's creation. And he hates you. And he would have no greater pleasure than to just absolutely destroy you. He'll make your life as miserable as he possibly can, but he, will, he wants to murder you. He wants you to commit suicide. He wants to take everything of life out of you. He wants you to suffer in the lake of fire with him for eternity. Well, let me give you a little hope. We're going to see later, I'm going to look at some verses, that Satan is a defeated foe. Christ, will he has already done what was necessary through the cross to defeat him. To free you from the bondage of Satan. To free you from being ensnared and being held captive to do his will. And one day, he will be cast in the lake of fire. But he is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Also, believe in the sovereignty of God. Because even what he allows Satan to do to you, he is sovereign over and he is using what he allows Satan to do for your good and for his glory, for your sanctification, for your conformity to the image of Christ, and he will protect you. Okay. So that's the first threat to your faith. The second threat is going to be persecution. Back in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, the one on whom the, the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when, get this, affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. A lot of people hear the gospel, as I said before, hey, no hell, heaven, that's a great deal. Bible's a great book. Christians are great people. But all of a sudden, as in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. John 15, 20, Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And New, the New Testament regularly uses the words affliction, suffering, and persecution to describe the response of the world and unbelievers to those who believe and preach the gospel and try to live as Christ would have us live. Persecution comes to you because of the nature of Christianity. It is opposed to the sinfulness of man and the practices of unbelievers. There's a tension between this message and the way of life of Christians and the way of life and the mindset, the thinking, the speaking, all these things in the world. So it's inevitable that we're going to clash. Even in a country where there's religious freedom, like we have, and there's, there's not in a lot of countries, you're still going to face restrictions on your face, faith. There's going to be discrimination. There's going to be other types of persecution just listen to these this list of things you're going to face your sexual purity will be an attack on people's love for free sex and all of the perversions that go with it <coughs> your sobriety is going to be a statement against people's drunkenness your self-control is going to indict people's excess eating your simple life of contentment is going to show the, the foolishness of seeking luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, then you're going to expose the ugliness of pride. If you're an on-time hard worker, you're going to expose laziness. If you speak with compassion, you're going to expose the callousness and arrogance and hatred of people. If you're earnest, if you're sincere, you're going to expose the, the flippant, 
uncaring nature of our world. If you're spiritually minded, you're going to expose the, the worldly mindedness of people around you. You're going to face temptation for being a light in the darkness, and you're going to be tempted to hide your light under a bushel, aren't you? Ultimately, some people are going to fall away from the, the faith saying, it's not worth it. Many of you might do this in 2019. You need to count the cost. Are you ready to follow Jesus throughout whatever happens, whatever persecution you face this next year? Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It's not an easy path, but it's one that is glorious. Filled with joy, even in the midst of this persecution. As we quoted Paul before, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says that this affliction came so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, in him we have our hope. That's the key. When you get to that low point, do you cling to him and hope in him, or do you look for someone else or something else? Do you forsake him? So get ready. Your faith is going to be tested by Satan. You're going to be attacked by Satan, and you're going to be persecuted by the world. The third threat to your faith is worry. Anybody experience that? Jesus calls it the worries of the world in verse 22 of Matthew 13. He says, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worries of the world choke out the word. The worries of the world are all the things we can be worried about. All the things we're anxious or tempted to be uh, fretting about or despairing about. They're really just the ordinary things of life that everybody faces. We can't really think of something new to worry about that somebody hasn't worried about. They're just the ordinary things. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus defines them as just thinking about, well, what are we going to eat? What will we wear? How long will I live? He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You remember in the account of uh, Jesus with Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10, verse 41, Jesus says to Martha, 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 you're worried about so many things. You're bothered about so many things. It's a website I found called What Worries the World. <laughs> they have a, a website like that, What Worries the World. And they, they, they poll weekly, weekly they poll 65 adults under the age of 65 from 28 different countries. And they ask them, what are you worried about? <laughs> You guys want that poll? I can try to enlist you in that poll. The main worries are unemployment, poverty, crime and violence, finances, health, and politics. And usually by politics, they mean uh, the direction of our country, what's, what's happening to our country. These are pretty common things to worry about, right? I mean, you hear all of those things in the news, and there, there's certain, even Christian people, that they have like news broadcasts, and they assess the news in light of the Bible and stuff like that. And frankly, I find those things, even though they're coming from a Christian perspective, to be depressing, to be scary. You are going to be faced with these same things that you were faced with in 2018. All those same things that we just listed. And the key is going to be, where do you turn? Jesus says that we shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't worry about them. You're going to need 
for your family, food and clothing. You're going to need a shelter. You're going to need utilities and transportation and dental care. I mean, how many of you need crowns? You're going to need health care. You may lose your job. How many of you lost jobs this past year? How many of you lost your house? There's probably going to be a hurricane. If not this year, maybe the next. You may have a a break-in. Somebody steals something from you. You suffer an illness or disease. It's probably going to be a threat for our country or to our country from somebody in the world, whether it's Iraq or Iran or uh, North Korea or Russia or China. And what about the length of your life? I mean, do you ever feel like, just, just recently, you know, I, I know many of you experience much different than I do, but, but I went to a, a, a restaurant not too long ago, and I just turned 55, and I saw on the menu it said, 55 and over, get a discount. And I thought, am I really to the age of discounts for my age? You know? So, you know, you start thinking at one point, you know, hey, half my life is over. Then three quarters of my life is over. Then at some point, my life is over. These are things we can worry about. But God offers himself as the solution to our worries. In that Matthew 5 chapter, verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And So, you know, don't worry about your life and the time. He says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Our faith, our faith is being tested by these things. Do not worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles, that's the the unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. So what are we to do? He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. He's going to take care of you in 2019. You're all sitting here. Everybody's got clothes on. Nobody's running out because they're hungry and famished and got to. I mean, you may go through these things, but God is taking care of you. Hallelujah. Amen. The fourth threat to your faith, though, is going to be the deceitfulness of riches. Look at verse 22, Matthew 13. Jesus continues in this parable of soils, and he says, And the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Mark and Luke in the parallels call this the deceitfulness of riches. Persecution can drive you away from Christ. Worry can cause you to forget him. Riches lure you away from him or they make you self-satisfied so you don't need him you think it's fascinating in our society that uh, money is just simply metal and pieces of paper that's all it is it has no value in the material and in fact Most of our money today is just simply numbers. Electronic data. You have a number 
in your bank account. You look up your bank account online. You see a number. You go to a store. You swipe your card. They show you a number of what it's going to cost. They transfer a number from your bank to their account. It's a lot of faith we have in just data, isn't it? We assume that people are going to value this data. Now, one day, you're going to come in and maybe we might come in one day and they say, I don't care what number you've got. I want some gold. I want something that is of substance that I really value. I mean, all of the economy is, is based upon what do people value? What are they willing to give? What are they willing to trade? Because it's, they, they value what they can get and use for themselves. But that shows us that whatever we value is what we will spend our money on. We value convenience, so we buy fast food. We value education, so we'll give money for books, even take loans out for tuition. We value entertainment probably too highly, and so we give money for, for Netflix and Hulu and video games and ball games and concerts and on and on the list would go with entertainment. If we value ministries of the church, though, it shows in what we do with our riches, with our money. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So riches, money, is a test of faith. It's a threat to you as you go into 2019. By your money, you have the capacity to show that you value God more than things or you value things more than God. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Take care, be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of, rich, of riches or possessions. Your life does not consist in what you have. In, that par in our parable, Matthew 13, Jesus says that riches are deceitful. The deceitfulness of riches. It lies to us. Riches, valuables, say to us, if you lose me, you lose a very large part of your life. If you lose me, you lose what life can be for you. Sometimes you have, uh, you have bowl games being played right now in the college football world. And you have people that, you know, some of these players, they, they sit out of their bowl game because they know they're going to go play professional ball. And if they were to get hurt in that ball game, they would lose millions of dollars, perhaps. So, there's what, the rightness or wrong of that, you know, you can decide for yourself. But, but the, the thought there is, is that they're looking at value. And value, their value in something affects their behavior. Money says life will be real. It will be truly real if you have me. You ever think that way? You're, are you ever tempted and drawn away by riches? By getting wealthy? When I stand at that line in ra at racetrack down here, to, I get gas and sometimes I'll go into the convenience store and I'll, I'll buy something cup of coffee usually. But when I'm standing in that line, it's often pretty long, and everybody, maybe not everybody, but most of the people in front of me are getting one of three things, or maybe all three. Cigarettes, you can guess them, right? Cigarettes, beer, and lottery tickets, right? People want to hit the lottery. They want to get rich, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, 
Be rich in good works. Be ready to share. Take hold of that which is truly life. Riches, your possessions, do not constitute your life. Jesus says this in verse 15. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, back in the parable of chapter 12 of Luke. Jesus tells us, though, in John chapter 15, or John 17, what life truly consists of. He says in verse 3, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, life is not about having things. Life is about having Jesus. So wealth lies to you by saying that this is truly life if you get me. But also, uh, it lies to you by saying that you're self-sufficient. Some people are wanting to get wealth, and some people have it, and therefore they don't feel like they need God. In Luke chapter 12, he tells a parable about a man who was successful. He was a farmer. He, He built bigger barns so he could hold all the stuff he had. And after this, he said, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the test of your faith. Will you try to get rich? Will you try to get material gain and and think that somehow that will satisfy you? Do you have wealth? Do you think that somehow that's going to take care of you? You can lose it all in a minute. And worse still, you can lose your life. And worse still, you could go to hell. If we have genuine faith, we're going to value Christ and we're going to look at anything and everything in our life the way that he does in Philippians 3.8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, he says. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Often in counseling situations, I'll say, okay, if God takes everything away from you, people, possessions, health, will you be content with Christ? That is a great question to ask yourself. It really is where the rubber meets the road. All of life comes down to that question. Can you say, all I have is Christ, and be content? We look to him to supply our needs. Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, let me give you a very practical example of how you show your value of Christ above all else. It's simply to give to the work of Christ in his local church. Let me give you a personal example. Over the last year, uh, we experienced a lot of upheaval in our lives. I'd left a ministry, so therefore I lost my job last not the previous summer. And we didn't know where we were going to go. And we had a house that we needed to sell. Uh, We moved five times last year. (laughs) Uh, Failing cars, you know, had to change health insurance. And I'm not complaining at all. God used that to show me that he does care. He does take care of you. He, He more than abundantly supplied all of our needs. But I have to say that when you have times of instability, 
that giving is a real challenge. Because you're thinking, if I give this away, am I going to have it for this? And so there's that challenge. Do I value Christ and his work and other people more than I value myself having these riches? So I have to admit also that it's a challenge for me since I don't use paper money very often. I rarely use cash. And so when I'm sitting there in the seat and the offering basket comes along, I don't have anything to put in it. And I'm not one that's going to generally use checks. When we have to write a check, we go scurrying throughout the house. You know, where do we keep the checkbook? So I don't use those offering envelopes either. We're moving into a more electronic and technical age. Technological age. And so I give online. I use that app that uh, we came up with for people to give. But the problem is, is that when you're sitting there, do you pull out your phone, you're reminded all of a sudden, hey, I, I, need, to, I need to give by the app or something. And be honest with you, there have been times I've forgotten to give what I really wanted to give. So just recently... I decided that I would go on there and that I would decide how much we wanted to give with my wife and that we would go ahead and have that taken out weekly. So we've set that up to where when I get paid, a certain amount just goes right into the church through that electronic means. And what that allows me to do also is now if I'm sitting in the service and I'm moved by a missionary. Or if I think about a need like with the academy or the seminary or whatever ministry, or you hear about a person in need, either through a person in need ministry or some other means, you now have this above and beyond that you can give to. So that's just a very practical way to think about it. You know, we do that with our other bills, don't we? I mean, how many of you have your utilities on just an automatic payment or, or you know, you, have your, you better have your car payment. I think they would, they would make you have your car payment on something like that probably. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of bills that we do that way. And so this isn't a bill. This is something that we want to value and we want to give. And the, the way you decide or how much you decide is just 1 Corinthians 16 too. This is the pattern that Paul teaches us. He says, on the first day of every week, which would be Sunday, worship day, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So this points to the wisdom of planned, regular, disciplined giving. That shows that we value Christ and his work. Now, we've assessed four different threats the final one the fifth one it doesn't show up in Matthew chapter 13 if you look at the parallels in Mark 14 and Luke 8 they add this in Mark 4:19 it says and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful Luke 8:14 calls these the pleasures of life so you have desires for other things you have pleasures of life in addition to Satan. Satan is a supernatural being who is in the spiritual world and he's against you. Persecution comes against you from people in the world. Worries of the world are circumstances of life you experience. Riches are things in the world, but pleasures and desires are things in you. So we have to contend in 2019 also with our own flesh. Our sinful desires are going to rise up and cause us tests of faith. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You have a war going on inside, don't you? You have these sinful desires 
that are waging war inside you against your, your new nature. You have the old nature, the new nature. The old man, the new man. And there's a battle. Solomon was a king. Remember Solomon? And if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that he tested himself with every kind of pleasure. Man, he was on a pleasure-seeking journey. Hedonism. He tested himself with uh, all kinds of possessions. He, he built palaces. He built houses. He planted gardens. He, planted, he, he created even an irrigation uh, system to water his parks that he made, national parks and all this stuff. He acquired for himself servants and slaves. He tested himself sexually in that kind of pleasure with concubines. He tested himself with uh, wine and the enjoyment of things that would affect his senses and sensations. He finally sums it up. He says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. But in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He talks about, Jesus talks about how these things are deceitful. Every pleasure that you have towards sinfulness is deceiving you. It's promising much, but it's going to rob you. It's going to devastate you. It's going to destroy you. Do not be fooled. Your sinful desires are not going to bring you joy or happiness. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, it says that it brings a passing or fleeting pleasure. It's the passing pleasures of sin that people are seeking. They provide instant gratification, usually without any consideration of the consequences. Sinful desires make you feel good sometimes, they can, but they have devastating effects. Pornography and adultery may make people feel good, but they can have destructive and often will have destructive effects upon marriages. Drug highs and drunkenness may give you that high, may give you that pleasure for a, a season, but it'll lead to life-dominating sin and destroys relationships. There are so many good things also that we can desire in sinful ways. You, can, you should enjoy your job and your family and even your leisure and your sports, your entertainment, these are good desires to do these things. But, but these can cause us to crave them rather than the greater thing, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 1611, David wrote in the Old Testament, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen to that last line again. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Does that sound good? Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. I want both. I like those adjectives. Fullness and forevermore. Don't you want full joy and forevermore pleasures? I want the, the quantity, the fullness, and the quality, the forevermore. And God says that if you want fullness of joy and forevermore pleasures, you'll find them in one place, and that is in Him. So these are the threats that you're going to encounter in 2019. But Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us the defense. 
It's good to have the hope that Satan's a defeated foe. But look at the proverb again, or the parable again. In Matthew chapter 13, he ends with this. He says, This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. In Mark chapter 4, verse 20, he adds, the word accepts it. He's talking about the word of God here and our relationship to the word of God. What God has provided for us is a threat assessment manual that also teaches us how to defeat these threats. And it focuses on our relationship to Christ through his word. In Luke, it adds this. He says that who, he receives it with an honest and good heart. And holds it fast and bears fruit with perseverance. There are seven things he mentions there about the word. That give us just this all-encompassing relationship we should have to his word this next year. You need to maintain a good and honest heart. Basically you need to maintain through prayer. And submission a heart that wants to receive the word. I want to encourage you to, to get into God's Word daily this next year. But not just to, to fulfill a checklist or, or match a reading plan, but to, to really do this, to realize how vital it is and how beautiful it is to receive this fullness of joy and this pleasure forevermore from Christ through His Word. His Spirit is going to produce this fruit in your life. Jesus says to hear his word. So you need to be in places where you can hear it, where you can read it. Be consistent in attending church or Bible study. Accept it. Accept it for what it is, for truth. Seek to understand it. Study it. And then he says to hold it fast. To be unshakable, to be immovable. To be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then bear fruit. Let it produce that fruit of righteousness in your life. Live by it. And finally, in Luke 8, 15, he adds, persevere. That's what you're called to do in 2019 is obey God's word, love Jesus Christ, and persevere in good fruit. My great hope for you all, my prayer for you all, which I'm going to pray here in just a minute, is that you will experience, and it just bears repeating over and over, this fullness of joy, this pleasure forevermore through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you brought every single person here for a reason. And there are different types of people here. Today there are people perhaps here that do not know you. They've heard the word today, they don't understand it, they haven't received it, they've rejected it, but even right now, Lord, we pray that you would get through to them, that you would just bind Satan in, his, in respect for him to deceive them or to blind them, that the light of the truth would pierce through the darkness into their hearts, that, they would, that you would grant them repentance, that they might escape the wrath of God, that they would understand the joy of believing and being forgiven for sin and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for those that uh, have professed faith and they, they look to us like they are genuine believers, but they're facing persecution or they're facing uh, all of these other threats to their faith. We pray that there wouldn't be anyone here who would fall away and demonstrate the, the lack of genuine faith. We pray, Lord, that those, though, that are genuine believers, that they would recognize that there is going to be a testing of their faith. There is one every single day. And we dare not sleep. We dare not be complacent. Help us to be alert. Help us to realize that we have an enemy. Help us to realize that we have things that are going to lure us away, things that are going to push us away. 
people who are going to try to deceive us. Lord, let all of this drive us to you, that we cling to the cross, that we cling to Jesus Christ. How precious is your forgiveness. How precious is your love. And Lord, draw us into that experience with you of pleasure. There's no higher pleasure. And we're going to experience it with you forever. There's no greater joy. And we're going to get the fullness of it if we go to you. Give great joy. Let's be a joyful people here at Riverbend Community Church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.